0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, good morning, everybody. If you are new to our church, my name is Dave. I serve as the lead pastor here at Harvest, and it's my privilege to bring God's word to you this morning. And if you are new to our church, uh, you should know that we've been working our way through a series on the book of James, which is a letter that the younger brother of Jesus, the apostle James, wrote to the church scattered all over Asia Minor. And these are people who um, used to be Jewish, met Jesus Christ the Messiah, placed their trust in him, and were scattered by persecution and other things all over the region And we're struggling to somehow reconcile their newfound faith with the difficult world in which they lived. The truth is, that's really what all of us are doing. Is we met this Jesus who is so compelling in the isolated circumstances of church. But we go out there after Sunday into the real world and it's rough. There's not very much in the world that encourages you to be mindful of Jesus Christ. In fact, the world will seduce you into forgetting him altogether, and so we are also are trying to figure out, how do I reconcile this weird new faith with the blood and guts and brick and mortar of this other world, which sometimes seems so real that Jesus disappears in the picture? Now, Probably there's no more earthy and earthly topic than money, and we're going to talk about that just a little bit today. The title of the message is The Stewardship of Power because you are going to understand that, that really the way James is writing about money today, he's not just writing about money, but he's ultimately writing about power in the way that we as the followers of Christ handle whatever forms of power are entrusted to us. So the text comes from James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. Let's take a look at it. Just get a lay of the land before we dig in. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So with those feel-good words from the book of James, we'll dive right in. And I'll, I'll give you the context because that's a pretty unfriendly sounding piece of scripture and, uh, you know, if you happen to have a lot of money, that's really off-putting to hear. And so I want to make sure you understand the right context and so that you can determine whether this, in fact, in any way applies to you or not. It's easy to see why some people think that the Bible and God himself, as its author, is obsessed with the topic of money. In fact, you know that more than heaven or hell, more than faith and salvation— More than prayer or any other subject, the subject of money is the most frequently addressed topic in all of Scripture. And depending on which way you filter that lens, um, there's anywhere from 800 to over 2,000 verses in the Bible that talk about our human relationship to money and material resources. Now, why is it? And especially in America, where we have so much wealth, now you may not feel like you have a lot of it, but especially in America where our personal aggregate household wealth is something like $81 trillion. If you divide the, net, the, the total household wealth of the United States by every man, woman, and child, on average, every person would be worth a quarter of a million dollars. So that's the, that's the ubiquitous wealth in which we live, in the same way that a fish doesn't know it's wet. We Americans don't realize just how much money has defined the way we think about everything. And so we Americans hear more than our fair share of teaching on money. And if you go to this church, you know that we don't really pull our punches when we talk about how powerful the hold of money is over the human heart. Now, I'm not going to stand here at the pulpit. You know, A lot of people suspect, well, A lot of poor people must have helped write the Bible because they sure have a problem with the rich and with money. I don't have any problem with the rich and with money per se. I don't think money in itself is evil at all. I think it is one of the most necessary commodities in the world. But anybody who is casual and cavalier about the immense power that money has over the human heart is naive and foolish. It's like saying guns don't kill people, people kill people. So let's let our kids play with our guns. That's just stupid, isn't it? Because, yes, it's true that that guns by themselves don't kill anyone, but you should always have a healthy respect for the tremendous power contained in a firearm. And it's the same way with money. Money by itself cannot chase after you and knock out your faith. But if you don't understand how powerful the grip of money is over the human heart, it will come and get you, and you'll be one of those people in the emergency room going, I was just cleaning it. I, I don't know what happened. It's because you didn't have the proper respect for something this potent. There's a reason that God talks about money more than any other subject. It's because it poses the number one threat to our faith and our relationship with him. Look at how powerfully he states it in verse 1. Now, in a minute, I'll make clear who exactly is the target audience of this whole teaching. But he says to those, whoever these people are, who are very rich... You should weep and wail, which is very strong. In Greek, that's a very strong distress language. It's a language of gnashing of teeth, of regret. And do you know how we define regret? Regret is best defined as finally getting clear on things when it's too late to make any difference. Right? It's like when you're playing deal or no deal, and it's down to two bucks, and you make the wrong decision. And right after the, the buzzer, and you, that's it. No money for you. It's that moment you go, oh, I should have picked the other one. Easy to say now, but it's too late to come to that realization. And that's the nature of regret, is when it's finally too late to do anything, you finally see with crystal clarity what should have happened, what you should have done. It's the heart of a boy who sees the girl of his dreams go to prom with another guy because he didn't have the guts to ask her. And the guy she said yes to is a dweeb, and you're like, dang it, I had a chance. I should have just had some courage and asked, but I didn't. And for the rest of that boy's life, that will be one of the defining regrets that will be part of the folklore of his life. What James is saying is, listen, money is so powerful that if you get your relationship with it all wrong, it can actually pose a barrier to your salvation that it could be the impediment you cannot climb over and be saved. That's how powerful a force the love of money can be in this world. And so all that to say is don't blow off the topic of money. Is There they go again at church ranting about how it's bad to be. Nobody ever said in this church that it's bad to be rich. But it's foolish to be rich without a proper and healthy dose of humility about what that can do to your heart Now, while James is a letter, by the way, are you guys freezing cold? I don't know what they're trying to do to us in here. I feel like they're going to thaw us out and cook us. While James is a letter originally written to a Christian audience, I agree with most commentators that in this particular passage, he takes a, a little bit of a detour, and rather than addressing directly the Christian audience, he's addressing a straw man who's not there. He's talking about the ultra-wealthy who have shaped the society in which these people live, who have defined the economic and societal forces that have touched the lives of all these people and, and really created the struggles that they have to deal with all the time. And I believe he's doing that in the same way that at a rally, you know, protesters are yelling at people who aren't even there. Like, down with whoever you, the ruler is of the land. And that person's not even there to hear him. But why are they doing that? To tell everybody who is there exactly what they should understand about these people. And as, you know, if you think about it, James's audience is this. He's writing to people who are trying to figure out how to be Christian in a world that's made rougher by people who have abused their power. And doesn't it frustrate you that so often it's the case that the people with all the power don't have a moral framework to use that power well. And so often people with power abuse it. It is so frustrating to me to see situations where somebody has so much authority, so much potential to change things. And they use all that power for evil and for selfishness. It is so frustrating to watch the effect that has on other people. And so I believe James is addressing those rich who in in the buffer zone that their wealth provides for them are callously abusing their power and negatively affecting the lives of many other people. And he's saying these things to those rich who are not even reading this to give encouragement to those who are oppressed and to warn them that even though you'll never attain to that scale of wealth, the dynamics that have corroded their hearts can also touch your life as well. Don't ever think you are beyond the grasp of the corrosive power of wealth and the love of money to change the way that you approach all of your life. You know, the comedian Chris Rock has this great bit, I don't know if you've ever heard it, where he talks about the difference between rich and wealthy. Do you know it? The way he says it is, Shaq is rich. And you've got to understand, Shaq probably earned on average something like million a year for the entire 19 seasons he played in the NBA. So he says, you know, Shaq is rich. The man who signs his check is wealthy. See, we're not talking about just the average person who's like, dude, I really want to buy a little upgraded car. I want to go from the the SL to the XL or the EX or whatever. We're not talking about those everyday run-of-the-mill struggles with materialism. We're talking about the kind of people who are so wealthy, they shape societies. They create the framework in which everybody else has to live their life. They produce the forces that touch all of us. And he says to the truly wealthy, something has gone wrong in the way that you have stewarded the power that your wealth has given you. And as a result, many other people are being afflicted because of your distorted relationship to money and power. So you understand that at a certain point of wealth, you are no longer talking about money anymore. After a certain point, you can arbitrarily define where that point is. Some of you are like, I'd like to get there and find out. But here's the thing, at a certain point, the money now exceeds the human ability, the capacity to psychologically grasp all that money. And after a point, it's just a game now about power. Because after a certain point, wealth is just like every other thing, it's really no longer about the money, it's about the power that that money represents. And so he says to these ultra-rich, there are some distortions that have happened in your heart, and you need to know what that's going to do to you, and to the Christian audiences that you also need to know how susceptible you are to the same things at a micro-scale in your own life. First thing he warns against, the first distortion, is this compulsion to hoard things. Do you ever see that show Hoarders? Creeps me out, man, I... I'm sort of type A anal retentive. I like things nice and neat. That show gives me no end to stress. Like it just cr- makes me crazy watching people just stack junk up. There is something in the human spirit, it seems, that by nature is driven to hoard things and to keep things. Today, the inequity of the distribution of wealth is at an all-time high. I don't know if you know this, but the richest 1% of Americans control one-third of the personal wealth in this country. I want you to hear that again. The richest 1% of our population controls a full one-third of this nation's wealth, which amounts to, the last calculation did, $27 trillion is controlled by 1% of Americans. If you zoom out to the next level, even the guys who are B students are doing pretty well. The next 19% of the wealthiest Americans control 50.5% of the remainder of the wealth. That means the top 20% of the richest Americans control 80% of the personal wealth in America. If you zoom out to a global level, the news doesn't get much better. The richest 85 individual human beings in the world are richer than all of the 3.5 billion of the poorest people in the world combined. The richest 85 individuals control more wealth than the poorest 3.5 billion people. Now, already, I see your eyes glazing over, because once you hear million and billion, he said, I don't even know what those numbers mean. So let me give you a frame of reference. Those 85 wealthiest people ranging anywhere from, like, Like 13 billion in net worth up to all the way to like almost 80 billion in net worth. They have an average net worth of 23.1 billion dollars. Do you even know what that number is? Let me, let me break it down to you this way. Okay. I, I was like 23.1 sounds small. You put the billion, it's a big deal. You could, if you had 23.1 billion, you could spend a million dollars a day. Do you know how long it would take you to spend all your money? At a million dollars a day, it would take you 63.3 years to spend $23.1 billion. So the richest 85 people on this planet combined have so much money on average, they could spend a million a day for 63 years and not be broke till the last day. Do you understand now that we're no longer talking about money because that's a level of wealth that so far exceeds any ability to translate into usable goods and services, you couldn't possibly use that kind of money in one lifetime. So if it's no longer about money, then now it is really about something that's more tangible to us. And that is the way that power is used by those who have it. And there seems to be among the ultra-rich an obsessive compulsion to accumulate more, even though you've already so far exceeded any ability to turn it into usable money. There's just this compulsive obsession to accumulate more. Another way of saying it is it's accumulation without purpose, accumulation as an end unto itself. I want more. Why? Because then I'll have more. (laughs) And why do you want more? So that I can get even more. And there's really no purpose or answer to why you want more. You just know you want more. And when you've reached that point, something has gone awfully wrong somewhere deep in the core of who you are because everything ought to have a purpose. And when you can no longer define the purpose other than to make the action an end unto itself, something has gone terribly wrong. And even though very few of us will ever have $23 billion, we all struggle at some level with this compulsion. I mean, you don't have to go to the world of ultra-billionaires to understand this human drive. Look at the crazy psychology of collecting. Any of you guys collectors? Like, obsessively collecting things? So there's some weird psychology going on there because at some point, you latch onto something. I I read about this one guy in Scandinavia who started collecting barf bags on a whim and now has like 1,200 of them in a barf bag museum. You know, and they're not full barf bags. I, you know, I mean, it's just pieces of paper. They're not used. But think about why. And there, it's impossible to come up with a satisfying answer to the question, why would you collect 1,200 barf bags? Um, I can't really give you a sane answer other than I can't stop. Once I started, and he's got 1,200 from 474 different airlines. The man is sick. He flies just to get barf bags. He has no other business. He flies, grabs a bar bag, flies home. Yes, I got one from Ethiopian Airlines. Something wrong with that. Look at some of these collectors. This is Lisa Courtney from the UK. She has the world's largest Pokemon memorabilia collection 14,400 items and counting. Here's Deb Hoffman from Wisconsin. A Winnie the Pooh. That's a. I didn't. Thankfully, I didn't say she has a large poo collection. She She, she has a large Winnie the Pooh collection. 7,000, a very holy number, 7,777 and counting. And to not leave the guys out, this dude's name, no kidding, is Jordan Michael Geller. Jordan Michael Geller has 2,500 pairs of Nike gym shoes. He has the distinction of owning every pair of Nike Air Jordans ever made. At some point, no man can actually wear 2,500 pairs of shoes and wear them out. Even Forrest Gump couldn't wear out that many shoes. It's not about needing. It's not about using. It is simply the psychology of the addiction to accumulation. It's the need to have and to have more and to have more without ever being able to answer why. And that's the troubling psychology of hoarding is that it is asking the world and God and all others to keep giving you more and at no point can you actually answer what you're going to do with all of it. You know what James says about that? He says, because you hoard so far more than you can use, The irony, sadly, is that so much of what you've hoarded in its disuse will rot. In the ancient world, you didn't measure your net worth in terms of computer bits and bytes and digital money. You you measured it by tangible goods, the clothing in your closet, the livestock and the wheat in your grain silos, by the gold and silver. And obviously, gold and silver don't corrode. That's why they're v- valuable and precious. But he's speaking metaphorically that when you accumulate things that don't get used by anyone, they are as good as garbage. When's the last time you reached into your trash can to find something to eat? Whatever you put in the trash can, you put in because you never want to retrieve. It is garbage because you hope to have it sit out of your life forever. And the irony of those who hoard more than they can use is that so much of what they own is effectively garbage because nobody's touching it. And while they're not touching it, it is slowly becoming useless to everyone. And what's particularly egregious about this to James is he says, so many of these people do it in the last days. And this is where he fires a warning shot to us Christians. The last days is sort of a tricky phrase in the Bible. Let me give you the best definition I've ever heard. The last days, according to the New Testament, are that entire time period between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. It's now, it's a thousand years ago. It's, it's the whole period between when Jesus first came and when he'll come again. That's what's called the last days. So we're not talking about the possible, imminent, near conclusion of everything. What we're saying is we live in the days after Jesus was revealed to humanity. And what does Jesus remind us? He reminds us of the great value that God places on every human being. And how central selflessness and sacrifice and love are to making the universe work right. And how when those things broke down, everything fell apart. How do we in these last days ever justify in light of knowing who Jesus is and what he introduced into the human experience? How can we justify the psychology of hoarding all of this which we will never use so that we feel better about what we own but do not currently use for anything? And at the heart of it, whether it's money or power or influence or friends or anything... We have to be on guard in our hearts against the need to have more without knowing why we would want more. Here's another distortion that has happened in the hearts of the very, very rich that has distanced themselves from God and from their fellow man. is that somehow in the insulation that wealth provides, there is room to become unjust or callous towards others. That's not to say that money makes you into a murderer or into a cruel person, but it gives you the freedom, the the safe zone to discover your inner mass murderer. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like inside of all of us is somebody who really doesn't give a crap about anybody else. Most of us don't do anything or care about anything that we don't have to. That's just human nature. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. It's in our human nature to really only care about me and mine. That's why I love my church. Everyone else's church is that pastor's responsibility. I mean, it's just human nature. we got to work hard to overcome that because it is our core nature to mainly care only about the stuff we have to care about. Recently, I did a bunch of yard work. And I get no sympathy or love from my wife when I do. I come in and I'm like, oh, and she's like, well, you wanted this house, you know. We used to live in a townhouse where an association service did it all for us. You said, let's get a yard. and So I'm like, all right, I'm barking up the wrong tree there. I want a little compassion. Nah. I didn't realize it's either that I've gotten older and frailer or yard work is really, really hard. Because most of yard work is done in this posture. And I actually experienced for the first time in my life recently where I was like, I've bent down and I can't get up. I was like, oh gosh, I'm stuck in this position. And I needed like six Advil just to walk around for the rest of the next day. And I know younger guys are like, why don't you just work out? Shut up. <laughs> Listen, it got to the point where I realized, man, if... Landscaping in this idyllic suburban setting is this much torture. Can you imagine being a field worker in the ancient world with no modern implements? I mean I trim my yard with little things, I just pull a button and goes. Bzzz! Do you know how I wa- you know how guys mow the lawn in Kenya? They take a machete and they bend the end of it and they just walk to the field like this. They literally walked the whole six-acre field with a machete, slicing three-inch swaths at a time, and it looks better than my lawn. Can you imagine how frustrating it would have been to toil all day long while the guy who owns the land is sitting on his rocking chair, sipping a mint julep, going, yeah, I'm getting rich on the backs of their, their sweat and labor, and you're watching this guy getting richer every second. And when it comes to payday, after all that hard work, he stiffs you. Uh, You're supposed to pay me for 11 hours. You only work 10 hours and 58 minutes. I'm only going to pay you for 10. That's the kind of, and can you imagine what you would feel in your heart after working that hard and getting stiffed on payday? See, there's something about injustice that rallies everybody's hearts because we hate it when we're the victims of it. These wronged workers obviously cried out. They complained. They registered their offense. You can't do that. I put in almost 11. You know, the other day, we rented a rug doctor from the U-Haul guys just behind the ministry center. Not happy with those guys. It's a 24-hour rental. I returned it after 24 hours and 13 minutes. That dude tried to charge me for a whole second day. I wasn't having it. So the pastor got pushed away by the inner, you know, unsatisfied customer. And I I got that second-day wave. But, man, it's that kind of like, like, really? Are you going to stand there and tell me that's right, what you're trying to do? Would you want anyone to treat you like that? And here's what I got back. The computer just said, it, you got it for two days. You know it's a twin. And this guy, have you ever come across... The I only, look, it's not my problem, I just work here attitude. Don't you hate that? You're the one behind the counter. I have no other person to talk to. You are my only connection to the powers that be. Do you have a brain? Do you have a heart? Do you have any sense of morality? Or are you going to just stand there like a robot going, I only work here. It's not my problem. Sir, please go to the back of the line. I hate running into that callous attitude. But you know why they can do that? Because they can. You go to the DMV, the post office, do you ever get good customer service? Because what, what alternative do you have? That's it. I'm going to the private driver's license facility where they treat people better. You can't do it. There's no such thing. They know you can't go anywhere else. And the minute they know that, the motivation for customer service is out the window. That doesn't mean everyone who works is a jerk. I have had some really nice people. But it's it's a symbolic place that shows you people are only as nice as they have to be. And so these wronged workers cried out, and the bosses basically went, All right, why don't you write out a complaint and put it in the circular bin in the complaints department? We'll take care of it. They turned a deaf ear to the injustice that they were creating. But look what it says. <laughs> while you turned a deaf ear and act like it's not your problem, those cries reach the ears of the Lord Almighty. Because God's not a jerk. He's not above listening to the cries of the little man. When those who are treated unjustly cry out, God, who is the most powerful being in the universe, does not put up a force field of power outside of him and says, Look, I don't have time for your little garbage. You are small fry. You are little little business. I'm talking about cosmic transactions here. I just don't have time to listen to a 13-year-old girl cry about her boyfriend who dumped her. That's not important. And, you know, can I tell you that even though I'm not at the level of a billionaire, there are times when we wrestle with that. Even as a pastor, like, man, with all the stuff I got going on, there's this young person who wants to talk about something that feels to me like give it about six hours, you'll be over it. I promise. But to them, in their world, at that stage of their life, that is everything. It is the height and the depth of heartache as you know it at the age of 12. And it means a lot to them right now. There have been times when my own children have been expressing their need for me and i got big business outside with real people's lives and real problems. I'm like, honey, not now. I've got bigger fish to fry. I've got more important business to take care of. And I don't incline my ear to the small problems of little people. That's messed up. But something about the human heart is such that if I can afford to ignore you, I probably will. If I don't have to be nice to you, I probably won't be. Have you ever had that experience with somebody's being real sweet to you until they realize you're not going to give them what they want and all of a sudden, <laughs> the bless your hearts are all out the window. Let's go. Isn't that just the way it goes in this world of ours? They're real nice to you when you're paying the bills. The minute they find out you're broke, um, can you come to the back door with the rest of the poor people? It's frustrating to be the victim of it's not my problem, I just work here. But can I just challenge you about something? Because at some point in your life, you are going to be given a position of power in the life of someone else. You'll be in an authority and decision-making position. You'll have access or a network of relationships. You will have resources. You will have some skill or talent or other natural attribute And somebody else's life will depend on the way that you steward that power you've been given. Even if it's just for a season, God will give you a taste of power over someone else's life. And that's not a question or an issue separate from your faith. As a follower of Jesus, one of the most central questions you're going to have to deal with in your life is when I finally get some power, what do I do with it? Because I sure as heck have complained all my life about all of those who had power and really used it to kick me in the butt. I know how much I hate the abuse of power. But when I finally get some, what will I do? Make no mistake, it has nothing to do with gender or race or age or anything. It has to do with humanity. Look what happened in post-colonial Africa. Africa. When African rulers finally kicked out their colonial oppressors and took over, they just took over being the oppressors. It happens in every colonial country. That as much as you hate when those people moved in and rule you, once you take over, you treat everybody the same way because power corrupts. And it gives us that safe illusion that I'm okay ignoring you. I don't have to worry about the stuff that's bothering you because it's not bothering me. What would you do if a wrongly terminated coworker said, look, you know I was shafted. You know they let, me, they let me go on a really, really wrong reason. Can you please leverage your good relationship with the boss? Go to bat for me. Fight for me to get my job back. What would you do in that situation? Dude, look, I really cannot jeopardize my relationship. I'm in good with the boss. He likes me. I cannot get involved in the middle of this. I don't know all the facts. I don't know all the details. Listen, I appreciate you don't like what happened to you, but I can't get myself involved in this. You understand, don't you? Do you understand what we're talking about? It's uncomfortable. It's costly. When you are in a position of power and someone says, would you use that power on my behalf? say, yeah, but then that might jeopardize the way I use my power on my behalf. And that leads us to the final distortion indulgence. And at the core of that distortion is that we're generous, but only to ourselves. We're very, very generous people to ourselves, but not to others. And now that's not speaking to us. We are, I, I got to tell you, our church is one of the most generous congregations I have ever, ever come to know. So please don't receive this as rebuke. But you've got to understand that even though we are great at something, that doesn't mean there's nothing left to learn. I'm not saying these things, and James is not saying them specifically to our church or to your life, but because it is such a vulnerability in the human nature. That no matter how far you get in the spiritual journey, this will always be something you've got to look out for. Because it is at the base layer of humanity to be very generous to ourselves and not as generous to other people. I don't know if you know it or not, but there is a quiet competition going on amongst the world's billionaires to have the world's largest yacht. There's mega yachts, super yachts, and now there are giga yachts. The irony is that half these yachts are owned by guys who live in the desert. I don't know where they even park these things. This is the 533-foot, half-a-billion-dollar Eclipse giga-yacht. Until just recently, it was the largest personal private yacht in the entire world. It's owned by Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich, who owns Chelsea, the the soccer club, football club, I'm sorry, in the UK, among lots of other things. This crazy boat has two helipads, 20,000 square feet of finished interior space, missile defense system, (laughs) and an escape submarine. It even has laser systems in place to ruin your photos if you are a paparazzi and try to get a picture from a distance. It cost the guy $500 million to build. He spent a few hours on it. He hires a crew of 70 staff to run this thing and grew bored of it within hours and hasn't stepped foot back on it. He's now renting it out to people. See, we have this really weird relationship with the ultra-rich. We have this sort of sick, almost pornographic fascination with their wealth. We're like, dude, $500 million. You, you know, you drive past neighborhoods where you're like, you almost get in a car accident. You're like, look at that house. <laughs> look at that tree, right? We have that sick fascination with the ultra-wealthy We're just like, what is it like? to walk around in any place and you go, I could buy that, I could buy that, I could buy you, I could buy your children, you know. Can you imagine having that much buying power? And so we have this pornographic, prurient kind of interest, like, ooh, a missile defense system on a private boat, whoa! But at the same time, we hear stories like the Sultan of Brunei's 3,000 Ferrari collection that is just going to waste, and you're like, there's something sick and stomach-turning about that magnitude of foolishness and waste. When you just kind of say, wow, and then the next sentence is, that dude's got more more money than brains, obviously, because there's something that makes you want to vomit when you see waste and self-indulgence at that magnitude. The world is full of billionaire playboys who are showing us what wealth and power without the, the spiritual moral guidance of God looks like. But that's interesting that one of the greatest lessons we learn about the stewardship of power comes from an agnostic. Bill Gates would still today be the richest man over Carlos Slim. What's his last name? Anybody know that guy's name? The richest man in the world. Nobody knows. Just because he's Mexican, come on. You got, somebody tell me. Slim, what is his last name? Tell me. You got, somebody's got to know this. Well, somebody Google it while I'm talking. He would be the richest man in the world, but he made a commitment, walking on the beach with his wife Melinda one day. You know, we're doing all right. <laughs> we sure have enough to eat. I don't think we want to make our children wealthy with all of this because they haven't earned it. Why don't we give it all away? That's the day their kids wanted to kick their parents in the head, right? But look, that's what they decided. They made a commitment to give away all their wealth. And to this date, they have given away $28 billion of their private wealth. If they hadn't done that, he would easily still be in the number one spot on the Forbes Wealthiest Human Being list. He has not only committed himself to eradicate polio and bring computers into classrooms and all of that, but he's teamed up with the second richest dude in America, right, Warren Buffett. And they decided, let's make this whole craziness, this lunacy contagious. And they started this thing called the Giving Pledge, and they've signed up at least 100 other super wealthy people. And if you sign your name on the Giving Pledge, what you're committing to is giving away at least half of your net worth to charitable causes. Listen to what this agnostic Bill Gates says in an interview about his wealth. I'm certainly well taken care of in terms of food and clothes. Money has no utility to me beyond a certain point. Its utility is entirely in building an organization and getting the resources out to the poorest in the world, says Bill Gates, the agnostic. I think this is a very enlightened approach to understanding the inherent responsibility that vast power and wealth poses to a human being. A person who has given this much and doesn't pause to question why has something really wrong going on in their mind and in their hearts. Let me break it down to you at a more human term. I have four children. And if I had four delicious cookies and I gave one of my children four cookies and found out that that jerk ate all four cookies, I'm like, what'd you just do? Well, you gave me four cookies. I ate them. Don't you know we got four kids in the family? Did I really need to spell out for you that the reason you, one kid, got four cookies, that blessing carried inherently with it an obvious responsibility? Would I just say, oh, it's daddy's fault. I should have told you. I should have to tell you something that simple, you dummy. Why would I give one of my four children four cookies and none of the other kids any cookies? Why would I do that? Don't you have any idea what kind of daddy I am? Did I ever tell you I only love you? Shh, don't tell the other kids. Did I ever tell you that? Shh, I only care about you. And I'll be very disappointed and heartbroken if I gave such an obvious blessing and provision to one child, and never once in the midst of that, did they say, why am I getting four cookies? Why? Why am I getting four cookies? It's a good thing to thank God for the blessings we have and to count them and be grateful but in the midst of that great provision comes great responsibility and a hidden coded message from your heavenly father that he loves all his kids. And the reason he's given you four cookies is because you got three brothers and sisters staying around you cookie less going, I wish I had one of them four cookies. You want one? Cause I have mine. I know I'm here at this pulpit saying all of this, but I've got to tell you, I still wrestle with this in my own life. I won't pretend I don't. But I think one day, I'm going to stand before my Savior, and one of the questions he's going to ask me is, what did you do every time I gave you power in this world? Whether it's influence or access or spiritual power, Or wealth, or even physical beauty, what did you do with it? You may never have billions, but you will have power. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, one of the greatest compliments you could hear in this life is you use power well. One of the greatest compliments someone can pay you is thank God you're the one with the power in this situation. Thank God you're the one who has the means to do something. Thank God it didn't go to somebody else who has no idea how God's father heart feels about this world that is so broken. So my prayer is that God will give you as much power as he prepares your heart to handle. That you have the good sense to pursue power because in the hands of the redeemed power will change the world i pray that you will become very good stewards of every form of power god will entrust to you because power like anything is a resource to be stewarded and how we do that matters to the lord so may god make you mind-bogglingly powerful in this world and give you the heart and mind of Jesus Christ to use that power exactly, precisely as he would do if he were in your shoes. Amen? Let's pray. I really believe that the way a person handles small things is ultimately a good predictor of the way they would handle big things. So while we've talked about people with billions and with global power, the truth is every one of us has some kind of power that we're called a steward. So maybe the first place to start is where is the source of your power? Are you a natural leader? Do you find that people look to you to guide them, to initiate? Do people just sort of follow you when you start saying things? That's your power. Do you know everybody? Are you a born natural networker? Do you have a Rolodex of thousands and one million Facebook friends? That is your power. Can you sing like an angel? Do you have the Midas touch in business? Do you work at the DMV? You have power. And again and again, the fate of others will be touched by the way you use your power. So many of you have shown me beautiful pictures of using power with the heart and mind of Jesus Christ. And I thank you for what you're teaching me. Let's reflect in God's presence about the power he's entrusted And invite him to say, will you please help me steward this power in a way that brings honor to Jesus Christ. So that's all I'm going to ask you to pray. Let's just quietly, in the presence of God, respond that way in prayer. And I'll invite the praise team to come and lead us in the final song. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church.